The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Let me pray for us as we consider God's word together. Father, we want to give thanks today that we are alive. Lord, what a gift. We thank you for your word, which is a gift. These are not just human words or any other book. These are the very words from your mouth. And so we may you impress upon these truths, and may they win our hearts. Pray that, Lord, you would take your word now and crush idols in our hearts. Enlarge these hearts to love you, to worship you, and to speak for you, to live for you. Pray that we would be grateful, thankful people. Speak now, we ask, Holy Spirit, to your church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give attention to God's word. This is 1 Peter 3, verses... Uh, 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for, than for doing evil. It might be helpful to back up just a little bit because we've been out of First Peter for some time now. That the sections really from First Peter 2... 13 to 312 is all considered one section, okay? And right before you get to 213, if you have your Bible, it might be helpful just to follow along and uh, have a Bible in front of you. Phone can work, but not going to work as well. But um, he, he gives the charge that we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable or good. And that's the big theme that he, there's a lot of occurrences to doing good, doing good, doing good. And so keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, which is better translated good, so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Keep doing good and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, then he's going to break it down. What does that look like? Well, in the context of government authorities, in the context of the state, and how sometimes that can be oppressive. And so verses 13 to 17 are in the context of how to live this out, in the context of there's governing authorities, and how do we live as people that are citizens of a state, and how do we continue to do good, right? He says it a couple times here, verse 14, that the government has been placed over you to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good, for it's the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, And then he's going to go into your responsibilities at work, 
What does it look like in employment, in a job? And he goes into uh, masters and servants, but in our context, that would be in the context of work and how do we live this out. And then he's, <clears throat> chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 is about marriage. How do we live this out in the context of marriage? So it's very practically, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this good behavior? And so he keeps coming back to this idea of doing good, but as he starts to pin down what this looks like, he talks about, really verse 13 begins with and. and it's, it's, it's a continuation. And who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And the idea is that most of the time, not always, because we certainly have lots of examples in Scripture where it doesn't always work out, but most of the time, if you're doing good, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Like God's common grace, often you will find favor. Did not Esther find favor? I mean, she's scared to death, you know. If I, if I perish, I perish. But I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to make a request. And she finds favor and it works well for her. And for Joseph, his life was great in Egypt. He is recognized. He is, finds favor. He's promoted to the second in command. I mean, isn't it interesting in Joseph's life that where he was persecuted and where he fell out of favor was within his own family? And with his own, with the own people of God were the ones that persecuted him and treated him terribly. But when he got to Egypt, he prospers. He does well. Who's there to harm you? For, zealous for what is good. He does good. He gets promoted. Esther does well, gets promoted. And she's, you know, God uses her to save the Jewish race. Same with Daniel. Daniel served under three different emperors. He served under Nebuchadnezzar. And was promoted. Served under Belteshazzar. And then he serves under Darius. But the people under Darius are, are jealous. And they come up with some scheme. And then they end up having him thrown into the lion's den. And so, you know, there's a balance here, right? I mean, David does really well when he starts off under Saul. I mean, he gets to fight Goliath. Goliath, or he kills Goliath. And he's put into the, into the army. He's doing well. He's winning lots of victories. But that song that Saul hears, that pop song about Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, Saul didn't like that song. And from then on, there was this jealousy. And then you get to verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. See, sometimes there is, for Christians here, you could say verses 14, or really 13 to 17, is the duties in persecution. You know, how do we deal with when it, when it all doesn't go well? Most of the time in God's common grace, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer, and there are times where God's people suffer, what are we to do? Well, the passage really only has one imperative. There's only one imperative. The rest are either subjunctives or different things in the Greek. But, but in verse 15, here's the imperative. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, hallow Christ. It's the same exact word that's used in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer begins with, hallowed be thy name. Same word. You're to, just as you're to hallow the Father, you're to hallow the Son. And that means to make Him holy. Does it mean that God becomes any holier? No, God is fully holy. But can He become holier in your heart and in your life? 
How do you sanctify the Lord as holy? How do you, in your hearts, sanctify the Lord? That means that has to be first and foremost in your hearts. It's the same word that's used in John 17, 17, where Jesus is praying in the high priestly prayer. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Make them holy. So what Peter is calling God's people to do is, first of all, Christ has to be hallowed in your life. If you fear the Lord, then all the other fears are going to come to an end. I've been just soaking and marinating in this Horton book on recovering our sanity. And basically, his point is that if we're not fearing the Lord, then we're not sane. And that what's going to bring sanity, and sanity is the word for health, and, and sanity sanitizes, makes us healthy. What will make us healthy? And the answer is, he's got a whole chapter, and here it is. Don't you just love when a chapter is one page? He just, here it is. I'm going to read it to you. The fear to end all fears. The antidote to our fears is the fear of God. The proper fear of God leads us to Christ, our only mediator, so that the improper fear of God, anxiety about whether he's our terrifying judge or merciful father, can be settled once and for all, spreading its domain, the proper fear of God also conquers our fears of false gods that we often take too seriously as if they had the last word over our lives. The fear to end all fears. That's what Peter's saying here. How are you going to be always ready to give a, for a hope, a defense? Sanctify the Lord. Hallow Christ in your hearts ahead of time. That's the, that's the remedy. How are you going to... You know, don't fear them. Don't be troubled by them. Don't worry about what other people think. Don't worry about your Facebook and how many likes or if somebody said something they didn't like and on your Instagram account and what if somebody doesn't like what I've posted... What if my boss doesn't like my work? What if, you know, we can go on and on. The reality is, the reason I had us read that part about Peter is, that's us. We're just like that. We can easily confess, oh, I'm ready, Lord, to suffer. I'm ready to lay down my life. I remember when I was uh, first gotten married and, and First child came along, had, and we had a five-generation picture as a family. And Kim still had a great-grandmother that was still alive. So we had a five-generation picture. So we trucked up to North Carolina. We got this picture together. And her great-grandmother was a believer. And she heard that I was in seminary, wanting to be a minister. And so she asked me in front of my father-in-law to... Tell me about the hope that you have. Tell me about. And I'm telling you, I completely blew it. I was too scared of my father-in-law to share. I could have just heard a, 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 a rooster crowing in the background. I mean, it was awful. Here I was just, it was a softball pitch to just tell me about your hope. And I was thinking, this isn't the right context. I don't want to share this right here. And I just bumbled out something that was just utter foolishness. And, you know, it wasn't anything of content or significance. And the reality was I was scared. I just flat dropped the ball. 
Why did I do that? Because at that moment, who was sanctified, who was hallowed in my life? My father-in-law. He was bigger than Jesus. And if, if somebody else is bigger than Jesus, and they're in lar- they're, if they're large and in charge rather than God, then you're going to be real quiet and sheepish. And that's what I was. And I completely blew it. The reality is the church, we're only one generation away from being extinct. What has the church always done? It goes and tells others about the gospel, about this good news. You're not going to believe this. Christ has risen from the dead. He has paid for our sins on a cross. God has proved it. If you can find the bones, it's all over. If we can find his bones in, in Israel, it's over. I was thinking this week about when Joseph, by faith, says, get my bones and get me out of Egypt. And when you go to the promised land, you get my bones and you carry them with you. And you think about Jesus being the fulfillment of that. He took his bones into the promised land, all right? He went right up into heaven with his bones or the physical body and is in heaven now because he rose from the dead. And even the hostile sources had to admit they stole his body because that was a, a huge admission of an empty tomb. There's no body. And then we've got all these appearances. And then we've got sheepish people like Peter who've denied him three times. And now they're bold as a lion and, and changed. How is that? Because... They saw Christ. They saw the resurrected Christ. And they worshipped him. And so this idea here of being ready to make a defense, this is kind of like the proof text that you'll see for like apologetics. If you have apologetics class, you always say 1 Peter 3.15, you know, and all these ways that we're to make a defense and prepare this, prepare that, prepare that. I'm not really sure that that's really what Peter had in mind. I think it's more about Put Christ first in your heart. Be filled with him so that he's so big in your heart, you're going to be swelling and ready that you have this hope. There's this hope. I mean, the interesting thing here is it says, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Is anybody asking? As John Piper would say, the reason nobody's asking or not many people are asking is because they don't see a whole lot of hope. I remember early on in our marriage, you know, or sometime, I think it might have been when we were here, I asked, I asked my family, you know, what does dad love? You know, what do you really love? I mean, it's a, it's a scary question to ask because the answer should be Jesus, you know, but I could certainly relate to food and coffee, you know. My, my family knows that, like, coffee's high on the list. You know, I got a huge coffee mug for Christmas, you know, to handle the amounts of octane coffee that uh, Dad has a little problem. Um, but what do you really love? Like, really, what do you love? If you were to ask your family members, what do you love? Because there's a lot, if, it's not, if there's not a hope in Jesus, nobody's going to... I mean, think about it. If you're people at work, if they really think, you know what, I really think, when I think of so-and-so, I think Republican Party. When I think of so-and-so, I think Democratic Party. And that's all they talk about. It's become their thing. Or this pet project, that's all they talk about is, all they talk about is their hobby. All they talk about is their car. All they talk about is this. 
And they say, well, what is your hope? Their hope is in that because that's all they ever hear about. That's all they're ever, you know. And so are they really sanctifying the Lord as holy? Have they really set him apart, made him higher and greater than anything else? And so it's pretty obvious that, man, that's, that person has a hope. Tell me about this hope that you have. Tell me about that. I think that's really what, what Peter is getting at here is that otherwise you're going to be afraid. You know, it says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, what's interesting here is this is a direct quote. And it's a direct quote from Isaiah, verses uh, 11 to 15. Maybe we can pull that quote up uh, for people to see. That what Peter is doing here is he's taking this quote from Isaiah. And in Isaiah's time, there were these two powerful kings, Pekah and Rezin, and they were, the Assyrians were coming, the northern invaders, and everybody is scared of the Assyrians are coming, and they're going to come and they're going to destroy Israel, and we're so small compared to this big, powerful army. And so the word of the Lord, the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warn me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Boy, I mean, we could just stop there and preach a whole sermon. I mean, and I already felt like it was coming out of my mouth this week. You know, IRS hiring 87 more thousand workers, and here they come, you know, and, we, and Christians are start fueling, and they hear about how bad the IRS is. That should not be us. We just need to flush that. That's conspiracy. What if it is? We don't, what do we really know? But do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. These people were scared to death of, of this invading army. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Do you see that? Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. Now, isn't it interesting? Just look at that verse. Go back one verse to verse 13. The Lord of armies, Yahweh of armies, him you shall, and this is the same exact in the Septuagint that Peter's quoting here, him you shall sanctify, regard him as holy. What is Peter saying? The Lord of armies is who? Yahweh of hosts of the Old Testament. Peter is saying that's Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of hosts, and him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become to you a sanctuary. You see? It's the fear to end all fears. It's the fear that at the same time scares us and yet beckons us. You know, it's like Jill in the, in the Aslan story, you know, and she's dying for this drink of water, but there's this lion, and, you know, do you eat people? And, and, and the lion just says, yes, I've eaten kings, and, you know, no problem. You know, and then she doesn't want to drink, but there's nowhere else to go, and she's dying of thirst, and where are you going to go? You come to the Lord. Yes, he's scary. He's terrifying. Everybody that comes into the presence of God, we can't dumb this down and say, well, it just means respect. You're going to be afraid because he's holy, holy, holy. And even the angels are covering with two they, hands, they, or their wings, they cover their eyes and they cover their feet because they, he's too holy to look at and they're, they're on holy ground. And even the angels who've never sinned are giving glory to God. 
and recognizing that his holiness is completely other than the angels. How much less us? That's why Peter, when he sees this incredible miracle, and he sees all these fish and the cords breaking and both boats sinking, and you don't catch fish like that in the daytime. He knows that. Lord, we've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. Why are you making us do that? We'll do it for you just to prove you wrong. Lord Jesus, you, you know about teaching, but you certainly don't know about fishing. Let me show you how it's done. And then all of a sudden, the boats start breaking and they're popping and all the fish and the, 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 the boats are sinking. They're calling for help. And what does Peter do? He falls down on his face and says, God's in my presence. He's more scared about God. The same with the storm when the storm was calmed. They're scared to death. Master, don't you care that we're perishing? They wake up, Jesus is asleep, you know, Jesus is asleep on this boat. Master, don't you care? We're perishing. They're scared to death. And Jesus just says, be still to the storm. He tells the storm to be quiet. And instantly, the storm is hushed. And then it says, then it says what? That their fears were relieved? That they just said, oh, Lord, you're so great. They were more scared than before the storm. Because they realized God was in their boat. Now they have a double fear. They feared a great fear. Their fear is so much greater than the storm. Because God is in their boat. Yahweh is right in their midst. That's what we're talking about here. That it's something so sublime, so incredible, so awesome. And when we experience these things in nature, we can't help but talk about it. You know, my son was just sending me pictures this week of a snapping turtle that just broke his line. He sent us a picture of the turtle, and that thing is freaky looking. I mean, that thing's prehistoric, and you could see how big. Man, I'm like, man, that could take your whole hand off. That'd take fingers, that'd take a toe. You know, we, we talk about things that are sublime. I mean, bam, this week. How many experienced a storm on Wednesday? Anybody have a lightning bolt hit anywhere near them? I mean, Man, I was in downtown Gaithersburg on Friday seeing the tree that lightning struck and they're taking down right in the front of City Hall in Gaithersburg. Huge pine tree being taken down. Well, it was struck on Wednesday. And when it struck, it was so loud that we kind of jumped off the couch, you know, because all the, the rain had finally stopped and then boom! And it was so loud, my neighbor just instantly texted me and said, are you home? <laughs> and I texted back and I said, that was close. And we were both like, man, that was within a block. Like it was so close that you instantly, you talk about the sublime, right? Well, what did the disciples do? This is what they did. Let me read this to you. With the resurrection, when they experienced it, they experienced Psalm 2:11 that says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's exactly what the resurrection was. It was fear and it was rejoicing and they didn't know which emotion was going to win. It's just trembling with fear. We have to talk about this. It's unbelievable. The angel says, he's not here. He's risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and behold, he's going before you to Galilee and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples, his disciples. And they met Jesus and they grabbed hold of him, of his feet, and they worshiped him. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. 
Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. That's Matthew's account. Luke's account. They were talking about these things. And Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw the Spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. This is Jesus of Nazareth. The one who was just crucified three days earlier is now eating fish right in front of them. Yeah, they're marveling. Yeah, there's joy. There's also this fear. They're not sure which emotion's going to win here. And so what about us? What is driving us? I mean, this is what what Horton says in his book, Recovering Our Sanity. He says, the church is the society he's forming by his spirit, through his word, into a communion that experiences, proclaims, and models the fear of the Lord. If the church gives the impression that the world's problems and solutions are the most significant challenges for it to face, it might as well shop and transfer assets to its preferred political party, pharma company, or tech firm. The sense of a genuinely transcendent God, qualitatively distinct from creation, yet the one in whom we live and move and have our being, is waning, if not eclipsed in our era, that reduces the horizon of desire to what we can access with a smartphone. You see, we're to sanctify Him in our hearts. And let me ask you, do you do that? In your daydreams, in your scrolling, in your channel surfing, in what you choose to meditate on and muse upon, are you sanctifying Him as Lord? Do you wake up and, and say, I am God's gift to the world today? How can I be used of Christ to be used to give hope to somebody today? Help me to speak a good word. How can I do my job to the glory of God with the gifts and talents he's given me that I can make known that he is Lord somehow? Even if it's just through my regular servant work, how can I honor him? You see, I think, I think part of our problem in our culture is everything is, is just dr- driven by fear. And that's part of what... Um, Horton is getting at in this book is that everything is being driven by fear. Just listen carefully. They won't say the word fear, but everything is like right now. And you're going to hear, of course, you're going to hear, what is this election going to say? This is the election of elections. And this one matters more than any in the history of our existence as a nation. I've heard that for the last 15 years, every election. They always say the same thing. And if I listen to any either network, it will tell you this is a huge deal and, and you need to fear and you need to, and here's why. And it's always stoking fears. While I was reading Tony Reiki's book on Newton, John Newton on the Christian life, in chapter eight of his book, he lists, John Newton writes a letter and he gives these, he's writing this lady and he says, he gives these seven Christian blemishes 
And he has fictional names for these seven characters. And he talks about seven vices of people. And with all of them, he gives positives and negatives about this particular type of person, except for the last one. The last one is all negatives, no positives. He doesn't have anything good to say about Coralus. And Coralus is someone who is just, all he wants to talk about is politics. And let's consider this for our day, because Newton is writing in around 1775, and he's starting to hear about this conflict with his country. And he's praying in his journal that may I be affected properly in how to pray. And he started a prayer meeting because his country was fighting these people over in Lexington and Concord. It was this place we would call America. And he started a prayer meeting, had 200 people just praying. But he wasn't trying to intervene, he just was praying. He knew there was a conflict. People were dying on both sides. And he wanted his heart to be affected properly. It's very interesting to hear it from another perspective. But this is what he says about Coralus. He says, Coralus wastes much of his precious time in declaiming against the management of public affairs. Though he has neither access to the springs which move the wheels of government, he doesn't work anywhere near the capital, you know, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't have any access, nor influence either to accelerate or retard their motions. He has no influence. Yet he spends all his time thinking about this. Our national concerns are no more affected by the remonstrances of Coralus than the heavenly bodies are by the disputes of astronomers. Do you understand what he just said? A scientist can write about these Orion's belt, and he can write about whether he likes it or dislikes it. He could write all about it. Can he do anything to affect Orion's belt in, in where it's going to move in the universe? You're just a scientist. What can you do about that? You can lecture all you want about you don't like Orion's belt, you don't like the North Star, you don't like some... They're not going to change. That's what... That's what Newton is saying about this. He's saying, there our national concerns are no more affected by the remonstrances of Coralus than the heavenly bodies are by the disputes of astronomers. While the newspapers are the chief source, sources of his intelligence, for us it would be blogs and social media, and his situation precludes him from being a competent judge either of matters of fact or matters of right, why should Coralus trouble himself with politics? This would be a weakness if we would consider him only as a member of society, but if we consider him as a Christian, it's worse than weakness. It's a sinful conformity to the men of the world who look no further than to second causes and forget that the Lord reigns, all capital letters. If a Christian be placed in a public sphere of action, he should undoubtedly be faithful to his calling. And that's where he did encourage Wilberforce. God has put you there. And since you have been put there, do that with, with diligence. So he wasn't against it. It's just you needed to be close enough that you could actually understand what the arguments are. And we don't. And yet we profess conspiracy, conspiracy. You know, the DOJ went into you know, Trump's house or something and everybody's crying out one side or the other. What do we really know? Really? Very, very little. <laughs> Very little, and that's what his concern is. He's saying, we don't really know. 
If a Christian be placed in a public sphere of action, he should undoubtedly be faithful to his calling and endeavor by all lawful methods to transmit our privileges to posterity. But it would be better for Coralus to let the dead bury the dead. There are people enough to make a noise about political matters. Our Lord's kingdom is not of this world, and most of the people may do their country much more essential service by pleading for it in prayer than by finding fault with things which, which they have no power to alter. As it is, his zeal is not only unprofitable to others, but hurtful to himself. It embitters his spirit. It diverts his thoughts from things of greater importance and prevents him from feeling the value of those blessings, civil and religious, which he actually possesses. So just to summarize, Corliss has five problems. He wastes time complaining about things he can't change. He speaks confidently about issues that he's read secondhand. He doesn't have enough direct access to the fullness of what the issues of debate really actually are. He lives as though God doesn't reign. He fails to distinguish between what is primary and what is secondary. And now he's become embittered and fails to benefit others. He's not sanctifying Christ as Lord. What he fears is what others fear. And he dreads what others dread. And he is calling conspiracy what others call conspiracy. He needs to repent. And where that applies to us, we need to repent. Place your confidence and your hope in Christ. Christ reigns. I loved hearing your message last week on Daniel. And hear this great man, Nebuchadnezzar, who thinks he's just so incredible. And we're told none can stay his hand. He is going to, by him are all things are created. And all things in him are, are held together. He's before all things. And he has the preeminence. And we get all caught up in this fearing other people, cancel culture. We could go on and on. But if we would honor Christ and recognize that he reigns and his kingdom is not of this world, and he's on the throne, and he rules, and this very God came to save us by becoming small, by dying on a cross, for our very sins. And yes, we need to have certain defenses of knowing how to defend certain things of the faith, but I think the bigger issue is we have to have our hope brewing and our hearts filled with Him so that we're satisfied in Him and people see that. And when they see that we are satisfied with Him, they want to know, tell, tell me about that. Tell me about this peace that you have. Tell me about this hope that you have that's greater than these other things. And you're not, you're not dying in despair because somebody has critiqued you. Somebody has said something bad about you or said something you didn't like. I mean, we're called here to suffer. And sometimes he says it's better to suffer for doing good. I mean, if you really want to see, is Christ sanctified in your heart as Lord, then you just answer the questions. Well, do I, am I willing to suffer for doing good if it's God's will? That's kind of the test practically. Am I, am I not afraid of what others think? Because I'm sanctifying Christ. He's the audience of one that I'm seeking to have. And so I can just let all those other things go. And I can tell you that sometimes it's not easy. And sometimes we'll be caught in places that, you know, where we're called to testify. Or we're called to do what's right. And I would just encourage you to come back to the Lord and where we haven't sanctified him in our hearts is holy, where we have given too much credence to Assyria, you know, to this invading army or to this invading whatever this problem is and this fear, you know, 
What, what really do you fear this morning? Be, be honest with yourself. What do you really fear? Is it the Lord? Do you fear Him? We're all going to have to give an account to Him. It is destined for man to die once and then to face judgment. That is as sure as sure can be. Do we rejoice with fear and trembling that we're saved and we know that we have sinned against this Creator. We have violated His commands. We're all like Adam and Eve. We're all blame shifters. We're all, we all want to play the victim. We all want to say it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. We all want to be the victim. But when we stand before God, Jesus is the victim. He was crucified for us. And so we trust Him and not ourselves. But ask yourself, what, what are we really fearing? Because so often, I mean, if I'm honest with you, what do I fear? I fear that I'm getting old and irrelevant. That's what I fear. That's what I fear. And I have to die to that. Say, all right, you may not be as young and as spunky. I don't like that my hair is all gray. I don't like that. I want to look young. I want to, because the church just worships the young. I want to be 30-some and hip. And I'm not. So here I am. Pray for me. Because I fear man just like the rest of you. And we need the Lord. Because he's large and in charge and we're not. So let's be small. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us. Forgive us of our fears that are so petty, so foolish. May we see that you're great, you're mighty, you conquered our sins, conquered death. Thank you. Thank you that it's true. We thank you that your bones, Lord Jesus, are in heaven and that you live now to intercede for us. Strengthen us, we pray. Give us boldness and courage to share and not to be afraid. We ask that, Lord, you would be number one in our hearts, in our affections, in our thoughts, in our words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.